Welcome to Action's Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. One mistake a lot of people make when we start trying to build things on our own is to literally do everything on our own. And in that case, we're trying to be not only the technical person or the person physically building the objects, but we're also trying to be the person that controls the budget, the per- person that worries about other aspects of the business. And also marketing and getting the word out is another daunting task that prevents a lot of people from doing what they really want to do. My guest today, John Geese, has a business called RAS, which I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, stands for Revenue Acceleration System. Mm -hmm. And his entire business is based around helping you network your product, network whatever service you're providing, and develop the revenue you need to make it a viable business. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you very much. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what made you determine that business development was the field you wanted to be in? <laughs> kind of like most people I am. When I was in college, I wanted to be, I took marketing. Okay. I wanted to be the Don Draper of Minnesota. He was the head guy for Mad Men. And as I went out and interviewed with companies, they all said, you know, you should sell something just so you understand the whole process, why customers buy. So I got it into sales. Mm, nice. And then as I went from company to company, I found that I wasn't really fitting with them and they weren't fitting with me. And it was time now to move along and help small business owners grow their business. And so when you talk about small business owners, is this a group of people that you feel a certain passion about? Is there a reason you picked small business owners? Yeah. So I was in the corporate world. I was what you call a road warrior. I was on an airplane all the time. Hmm. And I watched what happened when investors got involved in businesses. They would come in, they'd put some money in, and things would be really good for a little while. And then they'd start cutting back on service. They'd start cutting people. And pretty soon, customers would suffer, employees would suffer. Back when I was in college, they talked about this. And even a few years ago, I heard a DU professor talk about most workers and acquisitions fail to deliver value to Hmm. shareholders, customers, or clients. Interesting. So I said, well, you know, I really like the small business owner because, you know, COVID's a really good example. The government's going to throw a lot of stuff at the wall. Mm-hmm. Some will and some won't work. Most of their relief went someplace else. Wall Street doesn't care. Mm-hmm. But small business owners are the people that are going to buy tickets to your ball game. They're going to support the community. They're going to be in the chamber of commerce and become the leaders in the community. My passion is to help the small business owner on Main Street really thrive so we don't have to rely on Wall Street. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit more? Because I think this is a topic that eventually ends up affecting almost everyone's life unexpectedly. What happens when there's some sort of a merger, acquisition, some sort of a buyout, and what impact it has on, say, your everyday worker, as well as the products? Like, What do you think causes a lot of these things to go wrong in these situations? Well, if I knew the answer, then I'd be like the guru, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can tell you my experience. We were like probably in the top five of the business. When we got acquired and we got acquired because we made some stupid decisions okay. in terms of where we shifted our money and what divisions we invested. So the company bought us and within my division, we had 10 salespeople and mm-hmm. I think 12 offices. Within 18 months, they had lost 85% of the clients that were in that division oh, wow. due to poor performance and lack of relationships, which where's the value in that? You know, if you're acquiring a company, you're hopefully acquiring that revenue stream. Yeah. 
And I think people will make short-term decisions to try and either drive a share price so they get a bonus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But a few years ago, Sprint laid off 12,000 people in their stock and leapt through the ceiling. And I asked a finance guy, I'm like, that's terrible management. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now they don't have those expenses. So we can, they can get better earnings. And that's the disconnect. We can, mm -hmm. business is the most powerful vehicle we have for change because we spend our lives working at business. And when we can have a business that is generative, that is sustainable, that is stakeholder oriented, we can raise all the boats and we can make more money. And what I'm hearing you're talking about when you're talking about the differences between these investors and these small business owners is a short-term versus long-term thinking, but also some sort of attachment because I don't really imagine a small business owner, one that either built this business themselves based on their own passions or someone that bought a business, but bought the one that they really wanted to do and that they're really working on doing something like that, basically killing the business over a couple of quarters worth of share price and profits. Do you think that there are any investors out there or any VC firms that are investing in a way that's a little bit more effective, a little bit more future focused, a little bit more, well, it's like fairer to everyone, but also better for the longer term bottom line? Yeah. What I'm really encouraged about is the rise of the B Corp. It's a benefit corporation versus a typical corporation. Oh, wow. Their charter actually is for a benefit other than shareholder value. Patagonia is a really good example. Their primary mission is the environment. Oh, wow. And here, even here in Colorado, there are some sustainable business organizations. Mm -hmm. There's an investment firm here that they want sustainable business, people that are in that B Corp sustainable practice. But just like anything, it's not just that you're sustainable. They're looking for good businesses that are running and delivering profit. You know, it's like Sister Mary used to say, if I don't have any much money, I can't serve my mission. So we need to have money. But as we deliver more value to our neighborhoods, our communities, our employees, our vendors, and our shareholders, not only do we make more money, but they all rise up too. And then there's the, the, a bigger pot, pot. We get to expand the commons instead of shrink the commons. This seems like common, like kind of emerging way of thinking around the business world that you see more and more people talking about, about whether you're talking about being about more than just money or whether you're talking about it being a little bit more long-term focused. And I think the most concise way anyone's ever put it to me is that money should not be your initial motivation. You build a business because you have a certain service that you want to provide. And then, of course, the business world compensates you for effectively providing a new innovation, a new service. Do you see this old way of thinking as on the decline or do you see it still being very prevalent and that these special VC firms and B Corps and stuff are still going to kind of be on the periphery of the main business world? You know, that's a good question. I don't really have a crystal pole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sense that there's a trend, you know, at least in terms of how people are talking. Like the business roundtable last year said, we're going to be more sustainable and shareholder primacy is no longer the number one thing. But I want to come back and say that, you know, if you're going to build a business, you have to have revenue. Mm -hmm. That starts with clients. So you got to get your clients. You got to build the revenue. You've got to earn profits so that you can sustain the business. And what I have found is that when it's all about the money, 
you know, people can feel that and they're not quite as receptive. They respond to the intent to really deliver value. And, you know, particularly for a lot of solopreneurs that I know, that's a hard distinction because, you know, that client's check might be rent. Yep. But maintaining that focus on delivering real value and identifying can Mm -hmm. be the difference between success and almost success. What do you think prevents people? Do you think there actually is a fear and how common is it for someone to really deliver client value, but unfortunately still not bring in the revenue in the timely fashion they need for it to become a viable business? Mm, You know, I haven't looked at statistics for a while, but if you make it past three years, you've made it through the valley of death, right? Yep. It takes a while to build your business. What I find where business owners struggle is they think that everybody is their customer. I mean, everybody needs a real estate agent. Everybody needs insurance. Everybody needs a mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the question is, which one? And most of us, you know, like if you think about the real estate agent that says, I sell commercial and residential real estate up and down the front range. What's that sound like? It sounds like Charlie Brown's mother. Wah, 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 wah. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's the guy that says, I help millennials find the loft of their dreams in downtown Denver. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a very specific niche. Um, I was just doing some research earlier today, and I came across someone that wants to help healthcare professionals build wealth so they can retire early. So she's a wealth advisor, but she's decided that the healthcare profession is where she wants to focus. So she ends up learning their language, understanding their problems, getting into their head. Because most small business owners don't have the billions of dollars to build brand awareness around the golden arches. <laughs> so we have to get into the head of our customer. And that revolves around what's the problem that they have? What's the result that they want? Hmm. It's, you know, for a house painter, it's not that I need my house painted. They've already made that decision. It's, will they be on time? Will they finish on time? Will they make a mess? Will they mm-hmm. curse in my household? Will they smell? Will they smoke cigarettes? You know, so how do we, or how does the small business owner say, what slice of the business do I want? Do I mm. want to be the high-end prestige boutique firm? Do I want to be the contract, let me go in, spray the walls and be done? There's a place for all of those, but it's really getting into the mind of the customer you want to do business with and then messaging them. And I feel like I just barfed a lot of stuff at you. Yeah, but... It makes a lot of sense because I think it's common and there's a psychological reason behind why a lot of people will try to please everybody. And I always kind of make reference, I'm a, I'm a big fan, I like to listen to a lot of music, but oftentimes the music I don't really enjoy or some things that's kind of meh are the songs that try to appeal to everyone as opposed to just picking a genre and really appealing to them. But of course, there is the possible issue of having too narrow of a target, having too small of a base, how often do you encounter the reverse issue amongst the people you talk to where someone's thinking of only such a small subset of the customer base that they're never going to have enough customers to make it a viable business? It's a great question. And to be honest, most of what I see is the narrower and more specific you can be, the better off you are. Mm. In fact, there's now a term called micro-niching. And people are advocating that you get really super small. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an essay a few years ago called A Thousand Raving Fans by, I think, Kevin Kelly or Keith Kelly. Mm -hmm. The premise is if you find a thousand people, and it might be 500 people, it might be 1,500 people that know you, like you, trust you, and buy from you on a regular basis, 
you've got a successful business. If you think about a mortgage um, lender, for example, if the average person switches up their home every five years and I can get them to come to me every five years, the first five years, I'm working really hard. From five years on, I've got a steady stream of satisfied customers coming back. They know me, they like me, they trust me, I'm giving them value so I can build and sustain that relationship. What was the name of this article again, in case any of my listeners want to go in and check it out? Look up 1,000 raving fans. 1,000 raving fans. Also, is that a good guideline as far as this micro-niching? Because there's a way to dive down too much, but if you can get to 1,000 raving fans, that's just generally enough. So as long as whatever your demographic is has 1,000 people in it, you have a, a broad enough target to actually potentially start a business. Well, it's not a thousand people. It's a thousand raving fans. Mm. So that might come out of 5,000 people. It might come out of 100,000 people. If you think about it, the average marketing gets you a one or 2% response rate, which is so, okay. Um, but you can do better when you get really specific. So a really good example, let's think about the plastic surgeons trying to attract mommies for a makeover. Okay. Now, if they have a really pretty picture of a young woman and they say nurture the body that provokes envy, that really doesn't call out to mom, does it? But if you put a picture of a woman that's in her late 30s, early 40s, and you ask, would you like the body you had before you had kids? That's pinging the emotional part of your brain. That's mm. getting down to what mom's thinking about at 10 o'clock at night after the kids are in bed. That's what's like saying, hey, Stephen, across a crowded room where they're paying attention. And that's the way we attract people to our business. Interesting. And so when you do it that way, I'm guessing you get a much better rate than one to 2%. I've seen it go as high as 1100%. 1100%? Well, the plastic surgeon went from 35 leads a month to 400 leads a month, just hmm. by making that change. Just by making that little change. Is this an oversight? When you talk about the example of, okay, you just showed some attractive 25-year-old woman and they were really going to resonate more with the 40-year-old that wants to get their body before children. Is this a common general oversight of people not really sufficiently trying to get into the mind and empathize with their customer base? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it. Think about the ads you hear. And mm -hmm. the big guys aren't immune to this, but it's either they get a talking lizard or a yellow emu to try and capture our attention. <laughs> but most people say, I've got, I'm the best. We're the brightest. We have the most experience. We're convenient. We have the largest selection. We're bonded. What the consumer is saying when you do that is they're saying, well, I hope so. Who wants to do business with the person that shows them and says, you know what? We're just getting started. We don't know what we're doing. Nobody. So we try to put these platitudes out there, but platitudes are platitudes. And what that does then is the buyer then says, I'm looking for the best price. But when we can get really specific and name the problem that resonates with them and then promise them a solution, they're willing to pay for the right value. The customer's not looking for price. They're looking for value. Mm -hmm. Thinking about this, is this something that people should be thinking about? Say any of my listeners are just kind of vetting some ideas in their head. They're just trying to figure out what business idea to pursue, or they have an idea in their head to try to decide whether they want to pursue it and how. Is this something that should be factoring into the equation right from the very get-go of empathize with your potential customer and figure out what's going to make them want to get the service and also get value out of your service. Yes. And who do you like working with? A lot of the people that I talk to that are above a certain age, 
they're looking more towards retirement. They're not really interested in doing more work to grow their business. That's probably not my customer. You know, my customer is someone that wants to either increase the value of their business before they sell it, or they're getting started. They want to build something that is wealth and an asset. Mm -hmm. But you really want to stop and think, it's really two pieces. There's the demographics, geographic, age, income, et cetera. But then there's also the psychograph. What are they reading? What are they listening to? Where are they hanging out? What are their concerns? What are their frustrations? What would they like to do with their life? Mm. And it's not like we have a magic eight ball to look into the mind of the customers, but it's really just thinking about in your ideal world, what would they look and feel like? Because when I market to Stephen, I'm going to attract Stephen and Mary and Bill. If I market to everybody, I'm marketing to nobody. Interesting. And I think most people are pretty familiar with demographics and we all know the tools. Could you point us and the listeners to a good tool to look at if someone wanted to look into psychographics and how to actually conceptualize it best? If we were going to think about, say, everyone that lives in your hometown, your home city, how we would divide up the population along psychographics? That's a really soft skill. And there's not like um, where you buy a, a psychographic database. <laughs> yeah. Talk to the people that you like and that you would like to do business with. Where mm. are they hanging out? Do they play golf? Do they not play golf? You know, I, I knew a wealth advisor one time that played golf one time a week as a single. They'd walk in and hook up with two or three other guys that they'd make a foursome. And at the end of each week, he'd walk away with one or two appointments because over the course of that four or five hour golf game, he's building relationships. Mm -hmm. So he likes golf. Golfers tend to have a certain amount of money. There's some common mm -hmm. interest. There's some common ground. There's some common, well, for lack of a better word, vibe. So it's easier to do business with them. So when we sit back and really think about that, who are those people? Do, you know, do I like people that are learners? Do I like people that are salt of the earth? Do I like active people that are mountain climbers and hikers? Those kinds of things come to you just through time and as you interview people. There's a lot of personality tests and other types of things going on. Would you say it's kind of a mistake to think about it along the lines of a previously conceived framework as opposed to more thinking for yourself, like as you were saying, the kind of people that we want to attract are the kinds of people that do this activity and the kind of people that tend to hang out here or tend to go here a lot or tend to watch this show or anything else. Perhaps the relationship you and I developed is a good example. We met through an online vehicle and I think a networking event. We've had a couple of follow-up conversations. Mm -hmm. We kind of have a similar mindset. So as we're meeting people in our networking, people that we're doing business with, people that we've done business with, we kind of develop a profile of the people that we like and want to do business with. For myself, I like people that like to learn, that people are driven, that want to build a business, not just have a practice. I also want people that are frustrated. They've been sold social media marketing, Facebook marketing, SEO, digital marketing. They're going, what do I got? Those are the people that I can help by helping them create a message that regardless of how they market, their customer will hear them. If people aren't messaging, if people, it's all word of mouth, that's probably not my best client. Mm, interesting. It's the combination of who, it's the demographics. They have money, right? They have to have the budget. Then it's the psychographics. Who do I want to do business with? And then who can really use what you deliver? Mm. Who has a need? You know, so a painter, for example, might have two markets. They might have the end consumer, the homeowner, but they almost also might have the real estate agent that wants to get a home sale ready. Mm -hmm. And so that's two different messages, two different campaigns, two different psychographics, demographics, and all of that. 
Excellent. That's a good segue to give you a chance to tell my listener base a little bit more about the specifics of your services, as well as what website and everything else and how to get a hold of you if they are inclined. So first of all, your listeners can get a copy of this book that I published last year. It's new clients, new revenue, and new profits without spending more money on marketing or advertising. They get that by going to www.ras-squared.com and just, that's going to cost you your email address. Um, <laughs> it will give you strategies to grow your business without spending more money. And really what I do is I help small business owners that are overwhelmed and frustrated go from, oh my God, this is more work than my job to actually having a business that runs while they're having the time, freedom and income that they desired when they set up their business. Yeah, that original motivation. Because I think a lot of people and a lot of my listeners out there right now might be thinking, and I've covered this in some previous episodes, that motivation towards kind of having that individual, that personal autonomy over your life, not having a boss always telling you when, where. This whole concept of growing your business without spending more money on marketing because Commonly, people like to say, oh, if you want to grow, you have to spend some money on marketing. You have to throw some money down on some sort of campaign like the ones that you're referring to or blast Facebook or blast SEO or something like that. A perfect example. So for those of you that love Groupon, apologies. So Groupon takes about a third of your revenue. You also offer a big discount. So that leaves a very little piece for the business owner. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a restaurant that serves booze, that might be a good idea. Booze has got good margin. But mm -hmm. when you discount, you're really taking away your profit. So why wouldn't you want to create a message that's compelling, a message that pings that limbic system, a message that pings that emotional hot button that you have? So instead of losing, well, an example, I had a client that he was, his opportunity cost on his Groupon clients was about 750 bucks a month. That's what he was giving away to bring them in. He stopped doing Groupon. He reinvested that money in a little bit of marketing, and he now gets two to five new customers every week, all because he changed his messaging, he changed his targeting, and he's not given the discounts. So his margins went up as well. So would you say that your overall message for any small business owner or any solopreneur, entrepreneur, someone starting up a business, when it comes to the idea of marketing is to be a bit more intelligent, a bit smarter, a bit more targeted about it, as opposed to just throwing a bunch of money at just anything. Look at the back of your local community paper or your magazine. A lot of business owners have their business card or a photo of their business card back there, and they're hoping that someone will call them. Or they put together an ad and they've got a number that says, call me. Instead of doing that, or instead of using all the platitudes about quality and bonding and insurance, really stop and think. What is keeping my customer up late at night? What are they frustrated about? What are they afraid about? So, if, you know, if financial advisor, how do I know he's not a Bernie Madoff? Mm. House painter, how do I know it's going to be done on time? Roofer, how do I know I'm not going to find a bunch of nails in my backyard? What's they're not going to disturb the dogs? Each and every industry, people have certain frustrations with the industry. If you can identify the frustration that you want to solve for your client, you become like the bell ringer. Domino's, Pizza Hut, and Little Caesars are a great example. Domino's is fast, fresh, and quick. Pizza Hut is pizza your way. You can drive in, you can eat in, you can take it out, and, you can have, and Little Caesars is cheap, cheap, cheap. But mm -hmm. who owned that space in the marketplace? And they're each over a billion dollars in revenue, all because they clearly identified 
their client's emotional hot button and went to that versus we're the best, we're the freshest, we're the warmest, we're the platitudes. So what you're saying is to be weary, because people generally are weary about these overall general platitudes. Anyone can say, I'm the best. Or anyone can say, like that scene in the movie Elf, world's greatest cup of coffee. And it's like, what are the chances that you just like walked into this random place in New York City and that was actually the greatest cup of coffee in the entire world? Right. When it depends, <laughs> do you like dark roast? Do you like medium roast? Yeah. It, it depends on what it's the best cup of, cup of coffee for your customer. When you can identify what's the best for your customer, that's where you win. That makes sense. And it seems like what you're saying is that there are a lot of people out there who are trying to serve, like anyone can say we're a pizza place, but if you try to serve the pizza that everybody wants, whether it be the fancier, more expensive, higher quality pizza, or whether it be that cheap, quick pizza or anything else, they're likely going to fall short because they're trying to just spread out too much and say, we're the best pizza ever, as opposed to we're the ones that do this particular niche of the market the best. Exactly. Well, a good example. So restoration companies, they help you mitigate smoke damage, right? And they all use the same kind of technology. Here in Colorado, we have a lot of cannabis dispensaries. Mm -hmm. I had a colleague that instead of doing just general smoke remediation, they did cannabis smoke remediation. And they created a whole new niche. And anybody could have done it, but they created a whole new niche because they talked about something. My hypothesis, my strong belief is that each and every one of us, if we take the time to slow down and think about our business and really think about our ideal customer, we can create that market-dominating position. And when we create that market-dominating position, it amplifies everything else we do to drive our revenue. Nice. And so it's the market-dominating position within the niche that you want to serve. And it takes me back to your initial example earlier, like, oh, we serve commercial and residential real estate all up and down the front range. And you're right. If I hear that statement, my first thought is, okay, well, what does that mean for my house in Denver? Right. Or I've got a loft in Lodo, or we bought a home in a community and the real estate agent that had that community lived in the community. And so she was in the community talking to people. If there was a home sold in that community, 75% of the time they listed with her. That's a lot of the business that market share in just that one community. Mm -hmm. But again, she specialized. She got real... She got really micro niche, micro niche. I don't even know if that's a yeah. word. <laughs> no, what was the, you said the word before micro niche or something, right? And what is the danger of finding a micro niche or finding a small specific target and already seeing that person that already has 75% of the market share? So in that particular case of those lofts in Lodo, is there any room in the market for a new person to serve that exact niche? Or does a new person have to come in and serve a different niche to really have a chance at success. So this person's sold, uh, sold to millennials. There's another market that's moving into lofts and that's the you know baby boomers. They're getting out of their big homes. The kids are gone. So they want to go live the high life down in downtown. That might be another market to target. Now, if the market is full, part of it is looking at your competition. Who's there and what do they do or not do that you could do? So in the case of the smoke remediation company, there's a whole host of them out there. And this lady looked around and said, what are they not talking about? What are they not saying that I can say? Mm. There are some equations and some formulas, but it also, you know, everybody's unique and everybody has to spend the time with themselves or with a trusted advisor to really hone in on what can I do differently? 
if you're thinking of getting into a business, I would look at the website for the people you think are your competitors. What are they saying? What are they not saying? Mm. What do you like or dislike? It's the things that you don't like where you're going to find the place where you can be a niche to compete with them. Interesting. And for everyone out there, let's say there's someone listening to this podcast right now and they've listened to a few other episodes and now they're really fired up to start a business. What do you think is the number one most important thing that that person needs to make sure they do before actually pulling the trigger on something and say they're even going through like what you're saying, like think about your market and think about it more consciously? So the way I heard that was before I do anything, what would I do? Yeah. What do you have to do? What's the most important thing that most people don't or neglect to do before they get started? You have to develop the attitude. I'm a salesperson because I have to sell my business. I can't tell you how many people I talk to that say, I'm the CEO, I'm the owner, I don't sell. And I'm going to say baloney or BS. That's a belief system. Show Mm. me a CEO that's not willing to sell their product and I'll show you a CEO that doesn't believe in their product. Mm. You have to believe in it. You have to have your heart and your soul and your passion. But it's learning how to go out and learn what makes people buy. People love to buy. They don't like to be sold. So you have to figure out in conversation with the buyer, what do you need? What would make your life better? And then you have to sell something. You actually have to produce something and get it into the hands of a customer and make the exchange. And so I need to bring this up because there are a lot of people out there in the world, and you're probably well aware of it, that have a negative impression of sales. And that likely comes from the fact that you just said people like to buy, but they don't like to be sold to. And we all have that experience of getting that phone call with a person that wants to give you a new extended warranty on your car when that was the last thing on your mind. What do you think, given that even if you're not going to be in sales, if you're going to start a business or if you're really going to believe in something, you're eventually going to have to sell it in some capacity or not. What's the number one thing that people need to do to kind of adopt the right mindset and overcome this aversion to it that they may have from all these other cold sales calls that they didn't appreciate. So the advice that I got from my coach was, ask yourself a question. Will your customer's life be better if they do business with you? Hmm. If the answer to that is yes, then you're doing them a disservice by not helping them make that decision. I love that statement, by the way. Then it's salespeople get a bad name because some salespeople take shortcuts. But if you go back to the very beginning of the sales profession, it was a profession. People were servants. And if you come to it from a servant mindset, where it's really, how can I help you achieve your goals? How can I help you do a better job of keeping your business running, keeping your house clean, getting rid of the bugs in your home, you know, whatever that place is. It's remarkable how many different ways we do business in America. But Mm -hmm. whatever that service is, your customer needs that. So how can you best help facilitate their successful achievement of solving their problem? And if you can do that with the servant mindset without being economically driven, remembering you need to make a profit, but not being all about the money, your business will do just fine. And I just need to point this out again, because I love your statement pointing out, will my customers' lives be better they buy this product. And it seems like your product is one where you're helping these small businesses grow without having to spend a whole ton of money on some of these, I guess, like not as effective methods of marketing because trying to market to everyone and trying to use those generic phrases seems not too effective. And therefore, the message to all my listeners out there is 
when you believe in the product and you know that this product will make your customers' lives better and your customers as in that niche that you had established through kind of what we were talking about before. So this specific subset of humanity is going to have a better life because of your product, then there's really nothing but greatness around the idea of selling your product to them and getting them informed about the service or product that you're giving them to make their lives better. The selling is pretty simple. You have to capture their attention. They're asking themselves a couple of questions. They're saying, do you understand me? Best way to capture their attention is show them that you understand them. And that's the problem. If you can explain their problem better than they can, they know you have the solution. So then they're asking themselves, mm. can I trust you? If they answer yes to that question, then they're going to say, what would you recommend? And that's not the salesman pushing something at them. It's the salesperson helping them solve a problem. That's quite amazing because I think some of those shortcut cold calls, whatever you want to call them, really exemplify the exact opposite of what you're saying. Like we're just calling anyone that has a vehicle in this zip code just because your number is this and we're just telling you blah, blah, blah. And so I really like how your approach is to everything. And I really like how you're helping these small businesses, the people who are really passionate or really kind of wanting their business to succeed and wanting them to serve the purpose that they're looking to serve. Because it's my belief that every small business owner or business starter started with like this desire to bring that thing into the world. And you're helping a lot of them, I guess, make that, amplify that impact. To grow, yeah. growing their business, you're amplifying the impact of your business idea. I want to come back to something you alluded to, cold calling. Cold calling is mm -hmm. not a bad thing. Okay. The secret to making cold calling work though is to be sure you're calling the people that are most likely to be interested in what you do. And then it's the same uh, formula. It's how do you capture their attention? So we, whether it's a headline in a newspaper, whether it's a Facebook ad, whether it's a cold call, you've got about three seconds to get them to give you another 15 seconds where you can engage them. If you get through those gates, then you get to educate them on the business, the problems and solutions and challenges and why you're the best to help them solve that. And then you get to the point where you get to make them an offer. So this is not just advertising. This is also when you give your elevator pitch in a networking conversation. It's when you mm -hmm. pick up the phone and call a client in the B2B world. We have to think about what's on our customer's mind. And if we can capture what they're frustrated with, if we get them to recognize their problem, they're going to want to solve it. So it's really all about, as you were saying before, having the right niche and understanding the people in that niche. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, then cold call would be something that they're going to want to hear. They're going to want to get that call. They're going to want to get back to you. Whatever you're cold calling, you're an interruption. When the talking gecko walks across the screen, it's an interruption, it's something that pulls you out of your reverie and focuses. The key is to have something that the consumer, whether it's an executive or a homemaker, is going to say, I feel that problem, I want to solve that problem. And then you get to have a conversation about it. Excellent. And before we wrap up, are there any other final messages you want to impart onto my listeners about growing businesses and properly targeting their markets and properly thinking through and empathizing with their customers. Yeah. So a lot of people I'm talking to today would like to grow their business, but they feel constrained by the employee talent pool with okay. attracting good employees. Let me suggest that all of the things we talked about in terms of marketing to your customers, 
applies to you marketing to your ideal employee. You know, you have to show mm. them why they want to work with you because for this period of time right now, they have a little bit of power. They can sit back and wait. So when we make ourselves really attractive to them, we can attract the, the talent that we want. So you're selling your employees on, I guess, providing their time, energy, and talent to your organization as opposed to somewhere else. Well, sure. Let's take a mechanic. They're looking for a good, solid A tech. It's not a great mm-hmm. technician. Most of those are working for a dealer or another mechanic right now. So what's in their mind where they might not be happy where they are? What might be mm-hmm. frustrating to them? How can you frame your recruiting ad or your recruiting conversation in such a way that they go, you're right, I don't really like that. You offer something different? Tell me more. Wow, that's amazing because I, for one, am hopeful that this period, uh, whatever's going on with the, with the talent pool, is going to help bring more people to a job that they're happy with, more people in a place where they're happy. I've seen some of those Gallup surveys even before the pandemic about what percentage of workers in this country are quote unquote disengaged. And it's, it's a huge drain. Like we'd be so much more productive if every, if every single person or if most people really love their job and really want to be doing it and someone disengaged was the exception rather than the rule. And I really hope that this trend kind of brings us to that place. That could be another whole rabbit hole that we could go down. Yeah. You show that me a disengaged be. employee, I'll show you a disengaged management team. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. The problems go up and down. And it's just my hope that more people just find that place where they're more likely to be engaged. But as you said, that's another whole rabbit hole. So, John, I would like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. Thank you. And it is rah-squared.com for everyone that wants to get a hold of John and also pick up. Was there, uh, is the book on the site too, or yep. is that if you, It's right on the front page. There's a place where you can get it. Okay, perfect. Excellent. And I would like to also thank all the listeners out there for taking your time to listen to my show and stay tuned to Actions Antidotes for more conversations with interesting people who have pursued their passions and found a place where they are engaged. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you.